Hi, I'm Laura Shaw Frank, director of AJC's William Pechek Contemporary Jewish Life Department. Jews, who make up just 2% of the U.S. population, are the targets of nearly 55% of all religiously motivated hate crimes in America. The time to act against anti-Semitism is now. We need big ideas and bold solutions informed by Jewish knowledge and Jewish pride. Join AJC in reimagining what's possible. If you donate before December 31st, your gift will be doubled. To support our work today, you can visit ajc.org donate or you can text AJC Donate to 52886. That's AJC space donate to 52886. You can also find this information in our show notes. Welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Remember April 2020? That Passover Seder you celebrated alone or with your immediate family or perhaps with your favorite comedians. Stand-up comedian Alex Edelman was the head writer and executive producer behind Saturday Night Seder, a virtual program that brought people together for a few laughs about the exodus as we stayed safely apart. Comics included Jason Alexander, Dan Levy, Fran Drescher, and Rachel Brosnahan. They sang songs, drank cocktails, and offered their hopes and wishes for next year. Now Alex is bringing audiences together in person for his new off-Broadway show, Just For Us, which explores his Jewish identity through the lens of a white nationalist meeting he attended. Alex is with us now to talk about that show and why its themes resonate. Alex, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Right out of the gate, I have to ask, a white nationalist meeting? What were you thinking? I guess since 2016 or so, I've been interested in sort of like the intricacies of anti-Semitism. I keep this list on Twitter of white nationalists and, you know, people who are not just white nationalists, anti-Semites of all stripes. It's actually a pretty diverse list with one exception. There are no Jews. Or maybe there's one or two. I don't know. You never know. But the list is called Jewish National Fund Contributors. And I started as a joke because I wanted to annoy white nationalists by adding them to a list called Jewish National Fund Contributors. And then I realized there's actually a pretty handy compendium of white nationalists and anti-Semites and Farrakhan acolytes and the far left, the far right. What I do is if I saw a horrific anti-Semitic opinion or I saw an anti-Semitic opinion directed at me, I would add these people to the list. At its height, at the list's height, there were 500 people on this list and now it's about half that. Twitter has done a better job over the last couple of years of suspending people. So a lot of my original faves are gone. I'm using faves ironically. But yeah, so I'm interested in this group. And by the way, like I communicate regularly still with anti-Semites, anyone on any of these social media networks that are not Twitter. It's pretty easy to find anti-Semites. I could do it for you right now in 30 seconds or less. It's like a really 
simple thing to go down that rabbit hole. But yeah. Oh, no, thanks. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> no thanks. That's what my friends say whenever I'm like, guys, you got to see this. They're like, we don't got to see this. <laughs> well, I was going to say, did you learn anything in your encounter? I mean, by, by going to this gathering, did you, or, or even in your in your regular communications with, with folks online, have you learned anything that has helped you, maybe helped you understand Charlottesville uh, helped you understand the insurrection, help you understand it or see it any differently or, or more clearly? You know, the funny thing is that I'm very careful always not to paint anything as monolithic because I can't stand when people treat Jews as monolithic. Like, it's so interesting because in the show, sometimes I say the word Nazi, but these folks weren't Nazis. They wish they were Nazis. You know, like these folks have a couple of things in common And also even like I say white nationalist and white supremacist because like that is the terminology I am comfortable applying to this group of people given what I heard in that room. But I'm sure that some of those people would be like, we're not white nationalists. We're not white supremacists. We're just asking the questions that the, you know, Jewish run politically correct culture won't let us, you know, like that kind of thing. But I guess to answer your question, I think that a lot of it comes from a lack of identity or a desire for community. People just are desperate for in-person connection. People are desperate for gathering. People are desperate to come together around something. And hate is a tremendous and terrifying unifier. Someone said to me once as a criticism of the show, like, you know, you went to a uncivil gathering of uncivil people and then they complained and then you left. And that's it. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, that's it. Like, ultimately, I don't want to, I just spoiled the show for everyone. You don't need to go see it. But like, ultimately, it comes from these people just not having any healthy way to engage with their neighbors. It has to do with the balkanization of our discourse, right? Where people who are very much locked into their own echo chambers. And so if you see community, it's very rare that you see community outside of those echo chambers. Even myself, like mostly my friends are Jews and young liberals you know, the one ingredient, though, that's missing from them is good faith. They have absolutely no good faith. When they figured out that I was a Jew, if there was any good faith, they would listen to me. Like, hey, I spent a night at their place. They should come to my show. Like, why not come hang out, hang out with me? Those people don't do that. They've achieved the impossible in some cases of putting blinders on in the middle of New York City. That, to me, is the most interesting thing, is that New York City, given how diverse it is, probably has the biggest preponderance of white nationalists, white supremacists, hate groups of all stripes, right? Like those are probably ably represented. I've been among other spaces of groups that hate Jews and, you know, of different stripes, or I've had interactions with people who hate Jews in Europe and here. And I think the ingredient that's missing is missing from our culture in general, which is a tremendous amount of good faith. Well, you make a good point in that we we do live in bubbles, right? We do surround ourselves with like-minded people. I do it, you do it. This was an opportunity to not do that, right? To immerse yourself in a very different environment with very different points of view. And I'm just curious what your takeaways were about yourself, about your own identity from this experience. I realize that it is so hard to hate up close. I think my Judaism gives me a very agnostic perspective. I'm an observant Jew. I would even characterize myself as sort of a religious Jew. But I think having a slightly Talmudic perspective, right, where you're sort of willing to hear almost anything 
and analyze it in a certain way. Almost anything. And I think it is occasionally jarring to me to realize that not everybody is like that. I think what I learned about myself is that one, not everybody has the same approach that I do. And two, I want to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked in every room that they're in. I did some interview where they kept asking me if I was scared. And I was like, no, I wasn't like scared in this room. Like, I got to be honest, because by the time I realized that they wouldn't like me, it was time to go. I'm a likable guy. I'm pretty milk toast. I wear thoughtfulness as kind of a bit of armor. I was like, well, if I just come at everything with a thoughtful approach, then it will work for me. And so the scariest thing of this meeting is one, my own desire to be liked probably. And two, the idea that there are people out there who have zero thoughtfulness in them or not zero. They've got a more myopic point of view that prevents them from engaging in this certain way. This was in 2017. You wrote the show in 2018. I'm curious, though, you performed the show back a couple years ago, and, and now you're performing it again in New York. How has the show evolved or changed? I think some people see the show and they're like, they want it to be a think piece on anti-Semitism, or they want to be a think piece on like white nationalism in the U.S. or white supremacist ideology in the U.S., And I think that part of the maturation of the show has been making sure that it speaks to how I feel about that, but that it's not that. So the show opens with me meeting a, this is a true story about me meeting another comedian in the UK as I was starting to write the show. And she said to me, are you writing a new show? And I said, yeah. And she went, gosh, you know, I've always thought that your work could be, you know, a little more illuminating about the world that we live in because my comedy, since I started doing it, has always been a little documentary style. And so she sort of challenged me to write a show that was a little more thoughtful about the world that we live in. I gotta be honest with you, anti-Semitism has been like a part of my life since I was a child. Like I grew up in Boston. I grew up around non-Jews. I worked in offices that were not predominantly Jewish. I lived in the Midwest for a while. I you know, spent a lot of time in the UK and then time in Europe and then time in Australia. You know, anti-Semitism is something I've always lived with, I guess the journey of the show, honestly, has changed not as anti-Semitism has waxed and waned over the course of various news cycles, but as I started to invest a little more in my own religious identity, which happened when, you know, I was able to start building a home in Los Angeles and come off the road a little bit. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, I made something called Saturday Night Seder with a bunch of wonderful Jewish Uh, creatives. And I really felt like I sort of found my my tribe a little bit, no pun intended. And so that's why I'm like almost tiresomely insistent that the show is about my Jewish identity, because to me, that has been the change. As I, you know, spent a year and a half inside doing Chavrusa every week with um, Sarah Hurwitz, who's like a wonderful, do do you guys know Sarah Hurwitz? Sarah has been a guest on this podcast, in fact. So Sarah, who's thanked in the program, you know, has left an indelible mark on the show that she hasn't seen. For years, I sort of leaned away from my Judaism. Like, I didn't want to be the Jewish comedian. Or I didn't want to be the Jewish comedian. I want to put the emphasis on the word, like, Jewish, not the, because Mel Brooks is the Jewish comedian. But yeah, this show has really been the show where I sort of invest in 
how I feel as a Jew right now. And so that has to do with both the outwards world, which is looking at Jews in a certain way, and the inwards world, which is me looking at how it feels to be Jewish. But I wouldn't lie. The show's got much more to do with the inside than the outside. Maybe that's not like the sexiest ticket selling answer, if I'm being honest. I would love to be like, this is a sharp, insightful, like it's still a great story that is joyfully Jewish and reckons with anti-Semitism in the United States right now in a very like visceral way, but it's through a personal experience. It's not like seeking to address, you know, the world after these, you know, events that we've come to summarize with the name of one city. You know what I mean? Like, I think that would be like trite and reductive about a like very serious, thoughtful thing. Cause the show is serious and thoughtful, but it's got a joke every like two, three seconds. So it's a lot of fun, but yeah, I mean, that is how I've chosen to try to make the show like all things to all men. Well, it really sounds like you captured the present Jewish experience, which is that paradox of embracing the joy of being Jewish, but also reckoning with our world and the outsiders that view our Judaism as something very different. And that's the paradox right there. That's being Jewish right there. It totally <laughs> is. I've met some wonderful like Jewish allies. I've met some really wonderful folks. I'm not going to lie, doing it in front of Jewish audiences for the first time, or Jewish audiences where there are like more than two, three Jews, it is so joyful. Like It is so exciting. Like People who are non-Jewish love the show just as much. Some of them feel that it gives them a window into Judaism. You know, my old boss, Genji Kohan, who's one of the great Jewish TV writers and minds, likes to always say that the specific is universal. People come to the show and they're like, that's my Greek upbringing. That's my Italian upbringing. That's my Catholic upbringing. That's my Muslim upbringing. But to do it for Jews in the West Village, literally a dream come true. To say how Kaddish Baruch in front of an audience or to like do a joke with the word shul or Hashem in it without being like, I'm going to have to explain this. It's kind of, I don't know. It's really nice. I was going to ask you, who is this show for? Is it for Jews? Is it for a non-Jewish audience specifically? Is it for you? I mean, maybe it's for nobody but you. It's for everyone. The show is for, I. sometimes when I'm in a mood, I say the show's just for me. I think I've given that answer in interviews where someone annoyed me. They're like, who's the show for? I'm like, it's for me. But like, in reality, the show is there for peers of mine to think of as a good work. And Jews as well, peers who are like thoughtful Jews. Like when we were writing Saturday Night Seder, someone said to me, please don't take this out of context, by the way. Someone said to me, you're a real bagel Nazi in the sense that there were no boobies, no briskets, no bagels. I really don't like the way that certain people engage with like totems of Judaism. People say to me like, I'm basically Jewish, I like bagels. And I have to be like, that's not the same thing. The show is for everyone, but I also said to a friend of mine, I was like, the title of the show is just for us, which is that like coming to the show as a conscious choice is a conscious choice for an audience. And like, I'm just super grateful whenever anybody does. I interviewed uh, someone else this week, um, not for this podcast, but for another project who said, as, as a Jew, you have to be able to step outside yourself and see why people hate us and own that in order to understand and really deal with this eternal plague of anti-Semitism. And I have to say, that made me feel very uncomfortable when he said that. And I'm not saying he was wrong, but it just made me uncomfortable. But yeah, I want to see if you agree with that statement. I'd phrase it differently. This is a more annoying Yeshiva Bacher answer from an annoying Yeshiva Bacher. I think the word understanding is 
there are two different words to understand. There are two different meanings. God, this really is Talmudic. There are two different meanings to understanding, right? One is comprehending and one is sort of like agreeing. I try harder to understand anti-Semitism. I did a little documentary on anti-Semitism for the BBC. And I think it's interesting, by the way, because when you go on YouTube to see the comments, they are exclusively anti-Semitic, which is pretty, you know, like, it's YouTube. It's the trash heap comment section always. But I think understanding why people don't like us as Jews, I think Jews are a very handy other, a very handy scapegoat. I think stepping outside ourselves is very... I don't know. I'd rather stay inside myself. I'd rather stay inside myself and be clear-eyed about what's happening in the world and how. I have a friend who's Israeli, and we have lots of arguments all the time over Israel and Palestine, which will be my next show. I'm sure we'll end my career. But, you know, I'm sure whatever I say about it will piss off, you know, a million people, but it'd be wonderful to thread the needle. But he said to me, he's like, Israelis, you know, they just kind of get on with it. I meet lots of people where I'm their first Jew. I was somewhere in Europe. And I sat on stage and went, hey, I'm curious if you've never met a Jew before, would you mind raising your hand? And like half the audience raised their hand. You know, I did an interview with a really thoughtful guy from JTA, really smart dude named Ben Sales. He asked me a question about anti-Semitism and educating people about anti-Semitism. And he went, it sounds exhausting. And I'm like, not really. Like, I'm sure it is for smarter people, for people for whom that's their job. But like understanding, comprehending why people are anti-Semites Stephen Fry likes to say that a big problem is that people would rather be right than effective. So is it right for us to have to step outside of ourselves or have to reckon with anti-Semitism or to have to X, Y, Z? Probably not. It's probably not good that we should have to comprehend what anti-Semitism is in the United States in the 21st century instead of just feeling safe the way we should. But will it be effective? Possibly. So... I don't think the onus falls on any of us to do that, but I think making it as a conscious choice probably is sound process. These are not easy questions. If the answers were not complicated and <laughs> and were easy... favorite thing to talk right? about. My Jewish identity is so fascinating to me. I just love the discourse around it. Like I only like having that discourse with other Jews and thoughtful people, if I'm being honest. Like it wasn't a thrill for me to like I never really got a chance in this room to talk about Jewish identity. I got kicked out pretty quick. They were like, Oh, it's not just because you're Jewish, it's because you haven't really been invited. And I was like, Right. My favorite thing in the world is to sit with one of my collaborators or friends and chat about the thorny issues around Judaism. Like it's the coolest thing. And also sometimes I contradict myself, sometimes I disagree. You've talked about being liberal when it comes to your politics. You've talked about also kind of existing, living in conservative circles, mostly religious conservatism, right? Not necessarily political, maybe both. So I'm curious if you have been taken aback by some of the anti-Semitism you've heard coming from both the right and the left. Yeah, I always say that anti-Semitism is not limited to one group. I'm super clear about that. And every every time I talk about anti-Semitism, I try to remember to mention that because people have their own, you know, if you're on the right, politically, you're like, anti-Semitism comes from the left. If you're on the left politically, you're like, anti-Semitism is the provenance of skinheads and swastika-wearing Charlottesville, you know, maniacs with the tiki torch. Like, anti-Semitism is like a weirdly, like I said, it's like crazy diverse. And people always go, what does it mean to be anti-Semitic? How do we solve anti-Semitism? Which is like, you're not going to solve it. There's, that's, not, that's not a real thing. But a good way to be an ally 
as weird and milk toast as that word has become, is to call out anti-Semitism when it occurs in your own circle, or to also call out anti-Semitism in a way that's non-performative. Someone said something anti-Semitic once in a room in front of me, and my friend Alfie pulled them aside and was like, hey, just so you know, like that was like he didn't ruin the person's and by the way, not that everyone should have their own approach to tackling, you know, hatred or whatever, but like anti-Semitism comes from all places. Calling it out when it's in your own camp is, you know, most effective, impressive, important thing because it comes from every side and it comes from people who mean well. It comes from like pro-Israel evangelicals. It comes from the most radically progressive, you know, well-meaning, intersectional, thoughtful folks. Like it comes from everywhere. You were in the UK. You performed this show in the London Soho Theater, if I'm not mistaken. I'm curious how it landed there. I mean, you were there shortly after Corbyn stepped down as leader of the Labour Party. How did it land there? Were there any reactions that were particularly kind of un-American? People went, well, you need to talk more about Labour anti-Semitism in your show. And I was like, I'm not going to do that, actually. I'm not a spokesperson against anti-Semitism. And this is a comedy show. Like, this isn't a think piece or journalism or like... You know, this is a piece of art and theater about a very precious boy, you know, like this is uh, me. And you'd be like, really? Who's he talking about? Like, is me. <laughs> it's a very fair question given the atmosphere. I will say this. I wish there were more comedians both here and in the UK who did more shows about how they feel about being Jewish or who did more sets or who did more like, if I could have one comedy wish, it would be like, I would love to hear one of the great comedy minds like Jerry Seinfeld do a show about what it means to him as a Jew, like whatever his own identity means. There are some great Jewish comedians, Elon Gold, Modi, Gary Goleman does a brilliant job of it. Gary Goleman probably is the most quietly thoughtful about what it means to be a Jew and how to wear that identity. He's absolutely gorgeous when he does it. But in England, also, I got to be real, like, there is some anti-Semitism in England, and some of it's visible and visceral. When I did a tour there, I saw it in some places. People people who said stuff after shows that kind of bummed me out. In London, not at the Soho Theater, someone threw a beer at me in the show. Like, clearly not liking the show, clearly not liking the Jewish parts of the show. But, like, they were walking out of the show. And I said something to them that made the audience laugh because the audience knew that these guys were dissatisfied and what they might have been dissatisfied at. And they chucked a beer at me. So like that was in February of 2020. So it was right before the pandemic. And that really, that sucked. But it's weird. But I will also say that like I performed the show in front of thousands of people in the UK over the course of a run, not on one amazing night. And the vast majority appreciate it, love it, are thrilled by it, including lots of, like, all of my friends, every single one of them to a person who is a labor supporter has been dismayed by what's happened to labor, is pleased to see those, those issues being redressed because they are being redressed. I also think, by the way, that there is both validity to the charges of anti-Semitism, and I also saw it used unfairly as a cudgel by people who had vested interests and agendas. And I thought that was really gross and disgusting to see anti-Semitism weaponized. That's why I say quietly addressing anti-Semitism in a non-performative way is as effective as doing it in a loud, you know, public, you know, excoriating piece. So like I saw that happen, you know, public performances of 
anti-anti-Semitism from people who had demonstrable, you know, records of anti-Semitic rhetoric themselves. So like, it was a weird time. It was interesting to be there while it happened. It's interesting to be thoughtful about it. You do talk a lot about having conversations with people who have different views. And I'm curious if you have some pro tips for our listeners on using humor to help broach difficult topics, wildly opposing viewpoints. That's an awesome question because like, if you can maintain a sense of humor, that means you have your patience still. There's a phrase called sea lining that I heard yesterday. It's where someone asks a bunch of disingenuous questions to try to make you lose your cool and blow your top. Maybe it's possible that my show has an agenda, but comedy is what carries it through. The show was designed for spaces where people weren't specifically wanting to hear an hour of Jewish comedy. The show was designed for comedy clubs in the UK. Like no one in Edinburgh, or maybe there are some Jews in Edinburgh who are wonderful. I met a bunch of them, but like, or maybe all of them, I don't know. But like, it's a small, uh, I did a show someplace in the South and this guy came to the show and I was like, you're Jewish? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, what's the Jewish population here? And he's like, right now it's us. He's like, right now I'm the, we're the Jewish population. So like, you know, humor is a really great effective tool for sort of communicating an agenda, which is a shame because I think I'm seeing humor hijacked a bunch. The host of Jeopardy, Ken Jennings, wrote a great book about how humor is being used to hijack our agenda. But you, the listener, you can use that with your friends, families, coworkers, and folks on your bowling team. If you can come at things with a loose grip on them, then you stand a much better chance of like having a good, calm, civil, regular conversation because most of our civil, regular conversations have humor in them, right? Like when we communicate with our friends, we're jokey. We do bits. And also sometimes like you're not going to convince somebody. And so going away from that with the sense of self-preservation and a sense of preservation for the other person because it's not always disagreement is not always abuse, then I think you'll be much happier. Alex Edelman, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What a delight. And if you heard me on this podcast, please come and like say hi and say so. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with me this week is Hannah Rudolph, Assistant Director of AJC's Asia Pacific Institute. Hannah, if we were actually eating at this Shabbat table, I would probably be scarfing down egg rolls, fried rice, Kung Pao chicken, as that's what often is on Jewish tables at Christmas. My family has had a chili tradition on Christmas Eve, actually, but once in a while, we abandon that menu and order Chinese takeout. Does your family eat Chinese at Christmas time? Yes, absolutely. My family has eaten Peking duck for as long as I can remember. I'm coming over to your house. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Delicious. That is awesome. That is awesome. You did recently point out that members of the Jewish diaspora have called parts of Asia their home for generations. Many members of the Asian community have made Judaism their spiritual home. You are Japanese-American as well as Jewish. So to consider the Chinese on Christmas tradition a significant intersection of our cultures, it really overlooks some fascinating history, some pretty cool culinary developments, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, it's totally personal to me. There are so many points of intersection that we share between both of our communities, but also that we kind of interact with between the two communities separately. And that's definitely something that AJC, particularly the Asia Pacific Institute, does so much with. In the last few years, AJC and a number of Jewish organizations have really worked closely together with the Asian American community to advocate for hate crime legislation, you know, obviously 
the increase in prejudice and violence is something that has terribly impacted the Asian American community since the pandemic and one that unfortunately the American Jewish community is all too familiar with. And so it's been so important for us to stand up together with them. And similarly, we've been really blessed as the American Jewish community by the solidarity that Asian American communities have shown to us. An example of this is after the 2018 Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh, over a hundred Asian American communities kind of signed a letter of solidarity with us, showed up for the Show Up for Shabbat campaign that AJC did. There are just so many examples throughout our histories, especially here in the US, of that kind of shared solidarity. But it's more than just solidarity during times of trouble. Last year, AJC offered a reading list of literature and journalism to help American Jews better understand racism in our nation. But you, too, have recommended some books to help people better understand this historical intersection of Asian and Jewish cultures. Let's start with Jonathan Kaufman's book, The Last Kings of Shanghai, the rival Jewish dynasties that helped create modern China. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's an incredible story of these two multi-generational Jewish dynasties that flourished in Shanghai and Hong Kong through the late 19th century through the 20th century, the Sassoons and the Kadoris. Jonathan Kaufman is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and he is just absolutely marvelous at weaving together these really personal family narratives against a backdrop of what was going on globally, you know, British colonialism, the Opium Wars, World War II, the Holocaust, and the Communist Revolution. And I think to me, what's so compelling about his work is that he's really adept at pointing out the tensions and how these families operated within China. You know, they were brilliant businessmen and they ignited an economic boom. And in a lot of ways, China benefited um, from their presence. And of course, China is an economic powerhouse today. But these families were also incredibly blind to the deep inequalities that existed where they were living, inequalities that eventually fueled the communist revolution. So it's Kaufman is just absolutely marvelous. It's pulling these tensions and kind of drawing the reader in as he explores this. And I just want to point out that he also highlights several women in these families that were just really amazing feminists and did great things. They were just so ahead of their time. So even if it's just for that, it's totally worth reading the kind of profiles of Flora Sassoon, Rachel Sassoon, and Laura Kadori. So you also recommend a children's book, Matzah Ball Wonton Thanksgiving. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, I think this would be my personal favorite of my five recommendations, simply because I'm also Asian American and Jewish, and I would have just loved to have a book like this when I was a child. Matzabal Wonton Thanksgiving is about a young girl who just wants to celebrate Thanksgiving the American way, but her Jewish and her Chinese grandmas want to eat matzabal soup or wonton soup. And it's just a really lovely story about this girl embracing her mixed identity and I think especially as the American Jewish community is learning to embrace the diversity among us, it's really just a valuable addition to any children's library, and I'll be holding on to it for my future children for sure. And lastly, my favorite, B'nai Appetit, a cookbook that offers more than, I think, 100 recipes of Indian Jews. Yeah, it's a tremendous book. Esther David gives so much background as to how some of these recipes were developed, kind of pointing out how a lot of it, you know, just... In an effort to maintain kosher laws, there is so much coconut in an effort to avoid mixing meat and dairy. And then also kind of explanations like it's traditional for some of these communities to drink sherbet for Kiddush, a homemade sherbet, because there wasn't kosher wine available. 
so those are some of the traditions, you know, that sort of make sense to us. And also some traditions that are just completely different from the Ashkenazi traditions that we might be more familiar with, or that at least I might be. She points out there's a sweet flatbread that's eaten during Purim made with yellow split peas and rice flour in the B'nai Israel community and kind of variations in some of the other Jewish communities there. So it's really interesting. You know, I often say that Jewish cooking has been a gateway both to the kitchen and to my faith. I would love to master a few good Indian dishes. And I love that Jewish cooking, once again, offers me a way to do that. A side note, I went into labor with my son at an Indian restaurant. So I have a personal connection to Indian cuisine. That's fantastic. <laughs> so I love that I might be able to incorporate uh, Jewish traditions as, as well as those flavors. So Hannah, thank you so much. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Manya. So for more of Hannah's book recommendations, find a link in our show notes. Thank you for listening. The team here at People of the Pod will be taking next week off to ring in the new year. But if you missed last week's show, be sure to tune in for an insightful conversation about the diplomacy behind the Israeli Prime Minister's first ever visit to the United Arab Emirates. We'll see you on the air in 2022. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Ku Kong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 